chapter 25 and 26. So as we continue the sermon series through Acts, we'll be in chapter 25 of the Acts of the Apostles. And then, but first we'll, I will read from Daniel chapter 12, just verses two and three of Daniel chapter 12. Hear the word of God from Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the true and living God. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 
I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up someone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I, told, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope... I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when 
We had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would be proclaimed, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Here ends the reading of God's word from Holy Scripture. Imagine for a moment that you had charges against yourself in the United States of America, and it's a federal case, goes to the federal courts, and you and your lawyer appeal through the various hierarchies within the federal judicial system, and your case comes before the Supreme Court.
and then you find out that the Supreme Court is aware of your case, and they've hired some, some men to murder you, that they're going to hear your case, but then as you leave the courtroom, there are going to be some men who are going to trap you and murder you. It has the full authority and approval of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And you escape because there's someone somewhere who's defended you and brought you, but with knowledge of what was going on, rescued you. Would you go back to that court in eight days or two years? What would you think of the Supreme Court of the United States of America if you personally knew that was what is happening? That the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States of America had decided to have you murdered. And then they come and they ask somebody who knows you, why don't you bring Stephen Magotsky to the Supreme Court and we'll judge your case there. This is about what's going on with Paul. Paul is a Jew. He's a good Jew. One of the strictest of the Jews of his day, trying to keep the laws of Moses plus the laws that affected the chief priests. Didn't have to, you know, the general Jew didn't have to, the average Jew didn't have to do the, the, the sort of purity laws that the, the chief priests did, but the Pharisees said, well, we're going to be extra good Jews. We're going to do what the priests are supposed to do. He was called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. To witness to those in high places of power. And to others not in high places of power, Jews and non-Jews alike. To witness about the resurrection, to witness about Jesus Christ. In the, when we pick up the story here of Paul, he's been in prison for two years when the, the governor Felix is replaced by a new Roman governor, Festus. And it's the emperor Nero who's in charge. Nero became emperor at the age of 17, ruled for about 14 years, and was murdered. But Nero's the emperor from 54 to 68 AD, following the emperor Claudius, and if you know the history of the, the birth of Christ, there's a number of emperors that we can trace in non-biblical data. So this governor arrives in Jerusalem from Caesarea, taking on his new governorship, and the Jews urge him to bring Paul to Jerusalem. But the chief priests and the other rulers of the Jews in Jerusalem have a plan to murder Paul. It's the second plot to murder Paul by these same people. The Festus tells the Jewish authorities to, that he's not going to do it in Jerusalem, but that Paul is in prison in Caesarea. So come to Caesarea, which is his capital. So he's gone to his capital, and he says, all you, you Jewish priests, come and present your charges face-to-face -to, -face to Paul. So what do we have going on here? What's the history here? There was a Jewish trial, number one, 
where in Jerusalem, Paul is charged by the council, but Paul is almost killed. He's rescued by a Roman tribune. Um, he was almost murdered by a mob in Jerusalem. This goes back a couple chapters, so this is setting the stage for what's going on here. A mob comes, they accuse Paul of defiling the temple. He defends himself. He's rescued by the Roman tribune from being murdered by the mob. He goes before the Sanhedrin and he's presented with charges and he defends himself about one second before he's smacked in the face at the command of the chief priest in Jerusalem. And there's, a, there's again, a plot against Paul at this point. And the Roman tribune rescues Paul, learns of the murder plot, rescues Paul, brings him to Caesarea where the governor, Felix, um, has charge of him. And the Roman tribune sends a letter saying, I find nothing wrong with Paul. There's no, nothing here deserving imprisonment or death. But he sends him off to, to Caesarea, um, stating that Paul seems to be charged with breaking some Jewish law. Then there's a Roman trial number one in Caesarea, and this predates the passage we're looking at, but in that trial, uh, Felix, Governor Felix, the Roman governor, hears the charges by the high priest and the Jewish rulers, um, and Paul successfully defends himself, denying all the charges and basically saying they have no eyewitnesses for any of these charges, which was true. So it was all hearsay. Now later, Felix, the governor and uh, his Jewish wife, Drusilla, hear Paul sort of one-on-one, and Paul presents the gospel to them about faith in Jesus Christ, about the coming judgment, and about self-control, and Felix, who is an adulterer and who has stolen uh, another man's wife, this woman, Drusilla, gets really alarmed, ends the conversation. Well, that was before, again, that's background to this text. Now, where we are, we're in Caesarea, the capital of this province, governor, the new governor Festus and Paul are listening to the serious charges brought by the chief priests and the ruling people in Jerusalem. They've come to Caesarea, they present to, to Paul and to the governor the charges. And uh, the governor says, Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem to face these charges? And Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar. At that point, Paul being a Roman citizen, citizen is using his right in the ancient Roman Empire to have almost any judgment appealed to the person of the emperor. So Paul's in his right to do this. Now, they didn't always grant that right. The governors could still judge something and not grant that appeal, but this governor grants it. So Paul is appealed to Caesar as the one who will be his judge, jury, and executioner. He's within his Roman citizenship rights to do that. So Festus, the governor, agrees to send Paul there to Rome. Now, here's where it gets interesting because there's this Jewish king, King Herod Agrippa II. He is indeed the son of Herod I, who you might remember from the Gospels. And he comes with his wife, who's Jewish, and not his wife, his sister, Bernice. Doesn't say it's his sister, but we know from non-biblical data that it's his younger sister. So it's brother and sister, brother's the king, Bernice is 
you know, of royalty, and they are the elite. They are, they've been, uh, King Herod Agrippa II has been given kingship under this governor, and he's been given it by the Roman emperor. So here's a Jewish king, King Agrippa, who is friendly with the Romans. He's one of the elites. And Festus, the governor, the Roman governor, explains the situation. He says, I don't know how to judge this. This is about you know, Jewish law, whatever. Um, I don't know how to investigate it. I can judge it, but I don't know how to investigate it. Um, and he says it's about a certain Jesus who was dead, but now is claimed to be alive. So the Jewish king, Agrippa, wants to hear Paul. And the next day, the king and his sister, and check this out, they come in great pomp. This would be like a real big to-do. He comes with all his royal robes, his sisters in her royal robes. They come before the Roman governor, into the Roman governor's place of judgment, you know, kind of think a palace and all sorts of, and there's all sorts of military tribunals, think a bunch of generals in their outfits. These are the Roman um, uh, tribunes, and there's all the leading people of the city of Caesarea. So they're all in this large auditorium. They do this great celebration, and then they bring in the man in chains, the Apostle Paul. Paul thinks King Agrippa knows the Old Testament because he's Jewish. And he also thinks King Agrippa knows about Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection and the miracles because they're very, very public. The talk about it was public and there are many witnesses, not just Paul. So the king wants to hear Paul. And so Paul gives the longest defense in all of scripture to his being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He gives the longest description of himself and what he's gone through in all of scripture. First, verses four and five, Paul basically says, I've been a good Jew, I've been strict under the Old Testament law and so forth. He goes on to state that he's, he's on trial because of the hope that every good Jew has of the resurrection and all the tribes would have been there in having that same hope and that you know, like the tribes, 12 tribes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all those tribes, Paul connects himself with them. He's a Jew of the Old Testament, and he's saying, I'm on trial for the hope that every good Jew has, that there's a resurrection. And then Paul goes on to describe his supernatural call by Jesus Christ to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Quote, to be, Jesus tells Paul he's going to be, and Paul relays this to them, Jesus called me to be a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to the things which Jesus will appear to Paul. So Paul's gonna have an ongoing revelation from Jesus, but he's also going to be the one who proclaims the resurrection of Christ and that he is the Messiah. He is the one in whom all, of, all the good Jews were looking for to come and be the Messiah. He had to suffer, had to die, had to rise. So Paul is being told by Jesus, you're gonna do this. And Paul tells King Agrippa that the purpose of Jesus supernaturally calling Paul is, quote, to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the words of Christ given to Paul, and he repeats them to this Roman governor, this Jewish king, his sister, and all the Roman tribunes, think of generals and with military might behind them, and all the elites of the city of Caesarea. He tells that Jesus has told me I'm going to do this for the likes of you. He says that in a minute. But Jesus' words to Paul were clear. Paul didn't have to worry, what do you want me to do? What's your will for my life? No, there was a supernatural call by Jesus that Paul would be his apostle, his pa, his apostle to be proclaiming these things so that people would hear and believe and turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God and that they would receive forgiveness of sins and be placed amongst God's true people, sanctified, become holy because of their faith in Jesus. Paul simply says to, to King Agrippa and everybody who's there, I obeyed. I immediately started saying, the gospel in Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God doing things showing of their repentance. And Paul says, that's why the Jews in Jerusalem arrested me. That's why the chief priests, the head of the Jewish nation, arrested me in Jerusalem and tried to kill me. And then Paul goes on to say he had great help from God. Now you remember, if you're aware of what Paul had already gone through, he'd been run out of town, he'd been whipped, he'd been stoned and left for dead, so he's not re rehearsing all of that, but for him to say, I had great help from God, is a vast understatement. And then he summarizes, he's, then, he's standing on trial kind of, before King Agrippa, who knows the Jews, he's a Jew, he knows the Jewish religion, and all these military men. And then in verse 22, he, set, he tells them exactly what he is doing before them in these words. So I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. To Jew and non-Jew, Romans, kings, governors, military men, the elites of the city. He's doing it to the great the people who have power, wealth, worldly power, worldly wealth. They are the great in that world. And Paul is telling them the same message that he told the Jews in Jerusalem, that he told the Jews in Judea, that he told the Gentiles. It's the same message. He doesn't change it one bit because Jesus has told him, this is the message. 
You give them this message so that they will turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may be forgiven of their sins and placed in Jesus' community, in the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God on earth. Now this is, this is striking. The man's in chains. He's one man. He is telling them repent or perish, basically. Have faith in Jesus Christ who lives, who suffered, died, buried, and lives. Paul is proclaiming history. He is not a philosopher. He's not debating with them. He is announcing what has happened. And the context is, if you believe in these things, you will repent, governor, king, military men, elites in the city. You will repent. And he said it was already in the Old Testament. Paul is not saying anything new. As we would say in our day and age, he preached Christ from the Old Testament, which is what Peter did. All, all, they didn't have the New Testament. They preached Christ from the Old Testament. The Roman governor, Felix, jokes. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're too smart for your own good. Paul says, I'm not crazy. I'm making very good sense. And then he says, I know the king knows these things are true because the king is Jewish and he knows the Old Testament prophets. King Agrippa responds, teasing. It's not a response of faith. It's a teasing response. King Agrippa responds by saying, in a short time, would you make me a Christian? See, he knows what a Christian is. He knows, he's heard the gospel. He's heard about Jesus' death and resurrection. He's hearing it for the, maybe the 20th time. Who knows? And Paul's response is so godly. I would to God, everyone who hears me would be like me except for my chains. All right, number one. Note Paul's zeal for Jesus Christ. He's doing exactly what Christ has called him to do. In season and out of season. In chains, out of chains. Before great and mighty, powerful Romans. Great and mighty kings. Jewish kings. Before the Jewish leaders are so corrupt they're planning to murder him. He's been the same man who declares Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. Over and over and over. These men have everything they need to know to repent and embrace Christ. So they take Paul away, and the king, the Jewish king, the Roman governor, and Bernice all say, what do you think? They all agree. He's innocent. We could have let him go if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. One of the things I mentioned in the previous sermon two weeks ago was that if you look at Holy Scripture, and you look at how many pages are devoted to certain topics. And when there's a lot of pages 
devoted to the passion, the last week of Jesus Christ, you say, well, the last week of Jesus Christ must be really significant. Some of the Gospels don't even cover, cover his birth, but they have the last week of Jesus Christ. They go into lots of detail, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. So you see from the amount of pages of Scripture devoted to a topic how important it is. Acts of the Apostles is about Paul. A lot of pages are written about Paul. Paul's calling and Paul's experience are part of God's plan for reaching the world, all the known world at that time, with the gospel. And what Jesus said would happen, what Jesus said would happen to his disciples is this, before, this is Luke chapter 21, before, but before all this, he's talking about the future, just as Jesus saying, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Well, we've already seen Stephen stoned. We've already seen Peter preaching the gospel at Pentecost. Thousands repented. Even those who shouted crucify him when Jesus was in Jerusalem. But Paul is now the one who's before kings and governors, literally for the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's there before these men, these powerful men. And Paul summarizes in chapter 23 of Acts, chapter 24 of Acts, chapter 25 of Acts, that Paul says, I am on trial for a hope in the promised resurrection that's in the Old Testament. Let me remind us all that sometimes in the writings of Scripture, you look at the first couple of pages, or even the first paragraph or two, and you find the reason the whole book was written. Luke and Acts were written by Luke. In chapter 1 of Luke, verse 1, we read this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why was the Gospel of Luke written? So that one man would have certainty of what he'd already been taught. The life of Christ in Luke is so one man would be certain of what he'd already been taught, verbally, orally. Then if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is the word of Jesus that Luke records for again Theophilus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you, Jesus speaking to the apostles, which Luke records for Theophilus, but you, the apostles, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is what Theophilus needs to hear. Jesus sent eyewitnesses, not philosophers, not debaters, but eyewitnesses to the resurrection, eyewitnesses to the suffering and death of Jesus, eyewitnesses to the miracles that Jesus did, eyewitnesses to the, the miracles that some of the apostles did, eyewitnesses, this is historic testimony like a court of law, eyewitnesses. 
not just in Jerusalem. The eyewitness is going global, international. So Paul announces history, a historic event, and explains it. It's not a long process for Paul. He explains it. It's public. It's a clear statement of the history and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And what is the goal? The conclusion is that the goal is what Jesus had said. Not jokes. Not trying to be buddies with the governor or the military men. To the Jew and Gentile, small and great, there's one gospel and one Jesus and one message. Repent of your sins, have faith in Jesus Christ, turn from that, turn to God, receive forgiveness, be rescued from Satan. This is spiritual tyranny that the world is under. This is not a joke. This is not something that Paul is saying, I've got some nice, cute stories about crippled children or anything like that. This is about the world which is in bondage to sin and Satan and darkness. And getting it out of that is what Paul is doing. It's not a debate. He's not... He's defending himself as an apostle, but that's because he is called by Christ to be an apostle and proclaim this truth. In one meeting that we've read about, a king, a governor, and the military elite, and the rulers, or the, the, the very important people in Caesarea, all hear this. They all hear it. And from what we can tell, not one repents. Mission accomplished. He was an eyewitness. He proclaimed it. Gentiles and Jews in other cities heard Paul and they repented and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. In other cities, they rejoiced to hear of the the success of Jesus who suffered horribly, was crucified, dead and buried, and that God found him an acceptable sacrifice for sin and raised him up, and that that Jesus lived and was seen by people. So there's life beyond the grave. There's life eternal. There's forgiveness of sins. People just loved that, but not these. Well, that's a short conclusion from this passage, but what's the application for you and I? We're not the Apostle Paul unless you had a vision and heard a voice and Jesus called you to be an apostle. It's not, this doesn't apply to you in a sense. But, and here's the but for us. Imagine, if you will, and I, I, I can't imagine this, imagine the New Testament without the writings of Paul. No Romans, no Galatians, no letters to Timothy, no letters to Titus. I think he wrote Hebrews, no Hebrews. Imagine the New Testament without those writings. Paul is the preeminent theologian of the New Testament. He preaches, he writes of Christ from the Old Testament. He explains over and over again, how the, the hope that was there from Genesis through 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through all those, those Old Testament prophets, that all of that is a continuous stream of God working into the New Testament, and Jesus is a Jew born of the law, and that Jesus is there for all the Gentiles of the whole world. Paul is the preeminent author of the New Testament. To know who he is, that he was a good Jew, that he was conscientious, that he was no coward before the powerful people of his world. No coward. He announces truth to power. John Knox was a, a preacher, and it was said of John Knox that he preached Christ so earnestly that he could put a king or a queen in his pocket. He would not bend his message for any royalty. Paul was the first one like that. So that's the application. Paul wrote the New Testament. Praise, thank, thank God for Paul. Second application for us, Paul proclaims the continuity of good Jews with good Christians. Anyone who has faith in Jesus is a true Jew. Jew and Gentile are one in the New Testament. There's continuity between the hope of the Old Testament, the hope of the New Testament. It's all one promise. So, for example, when Paul writes, again, imagine... Imagine the New Testament without Ephesians, but chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, as Paul writing to the Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Jew and Gentile made one. And then skipping, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Jew and Gentile separate, now one. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between Jew and Gentile. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And some of you may have memorized this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the glory of the gospel. It goes international, and all those who come to faith are in this new covenant, true community of believers. Let me give you a sub-application. Those are sort of understanding the history of what God is doing. If you ever have an opportunity, maybe you're not in jail, but you have an opportunity to speak the gospel to someone who's powerful, do not change the message because they're a very important person. Whether they're the President of the United States or the Prime Minister or some other kind of powerful person, may you have the courage to tell them repent or perish. 
be they Muslim, Hindu, your boss, family member, repent or perish and receive forgiveness of sins, that the resurrection is a reality. That's a simple message you could start to tell somebody. But do not dumb it down for any sort of perceived fear of that person or perceived sort of weakness that the message should not be strong. Last application. Paul emphasizes over and over and over again the resurrection and the hope the resurrection means for us who are in Christ. There's no application here for how to have a good marriage. No application here for how to be a good worker or or how to raise your children. But the hope that we have is that Jesus rose from the dead and because he was an acceptable sacrifice, we who are in Christ will rise once from the dead and we will live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. That is astounding. You add to that that you have been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God. You've gone from darkness to light. You've gone from death to life. That has already happened for you and I. Worship God for those gifts you have and worship him and be joyful for what is coming. That's it. Hope. You have a hope that is not yet fulfilled but will be so glorious once you get there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we thank you for the apostle Paul. We thank you that Jesus chose him and called him to be his apostle. We thank you that Paul had great help from you and that we have the words of Paul and his constant defending of himself and his apostleship before great and small. May we give thanks to you for what you've done in writing your word through the Apostle Paul. And may we have hope, Father, not hope like the world has, and may we always be able to give to unbelievers the reason for the hope we have, that our hope is in the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.